0: I've got a question for you. We often are asked, is sex addiction a real thing? We'll talk about it today on the Faithful and True Podcast. Our host, Dr. Greg Miller, and a very special guest today from the staff of Faithful and True, one of our uh, most highly acclaimed uh, counselors, Elizabeth Griffin. Good morning, Elizabeth. How are you?
1: Good morning.
0: Uh, so, we have asked Elizabeth to join us this morning for uh, a conversation uh, about the general topic of sex addiction. Right. And, yeah. And exactly because there's a lot of, uh, uh, a lot of, misunderstanding sometimes about that term itself. For those of you that are just joining us for the first time, uh, we would invite you to visit our YouTube channel, the Faithful and True channel, and uh, click on subscribe and on like. We'd love to uh, see those numbers grow as uh, we continue to try and spread the good word of hope uh, out there for those that are going through the challenges that can come with unwanted sexual uh, behaviors. So Greg... Uh, I'll let you get the ball rolling oh, this great. morning.
2: Well, and really, the the idea of this podcast came about. um, If you've ever visited the Faithful and True website, you see that we refer to sex addiction. Um, a lot of times, men will call, wondering about our workshop and wondering if they're a sex addict. Is that something? Is the workshop for them? So, it felt like it would be helpful for us to just do some conversation around clarifying what exactly is sex addiction. Um, Several years ago, one of our sons would just say this phrase, it's not a thing. And he he thought a lot of things were not a thing. You know, English literature was not a thing, English grammar. Do you see a pattern here? Making my bed. So kind of, yeah, that's not a thing. (laughs) So the the topic today is really, is sex addiction a thing? And if you keep up with the media, you're going to see voices that say, yes, it is, and no, it's not. And so, Elizabeth, you're probably the perfect guest for us to have today with... Your experience, and I don't want to use the word history because that makes it sound like you're old, and but you're not. I am, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's but, true. but you have been engaged in the top topic for a while, and so I thought we would just start with, you know, where did the term sex addiction come from, or a little bit about the history of the evolution of that, and then the other thing I think would be helpful is um, how does the the story of sex addiction compare to some of the other behavioral addictions like gambling addiction. Or the shopping or workaholism. And so, kind of, what was that movement when we first began to think that, hey, a behavior could also be an addiction?
1: Okay. Well, the term really was coined by Patrick Carnes, who um, actually was a friend, is uh, a friend at Faithful and mm-hmm. Truth. I worked for Pat for a number of years, and he coined the term in the early 80s. Mm-hmm. And really, that came out of his book, Out of the Shadows, which I think um, is the book that a lot of people, is maybe the first book they often read when they're struggling with problematic sexual behavior. So there has been a lot of debate Mm -hmm. about the term over the years. It's interesting. There's not a debate that it, I call it Syndrome X, Mm -hmm. exists. Um, and that has been particularly true in the last 15 years with technology. Right. Uh, of all the bad things that have come out of people's use of technology and sexuality sometimes. One of the good things is it's brought to the forefront that people can really struggle and be out of control with their sexual behavior. Right. And so there is now a lot of consensus that pe- there are people... Who uh, try to stop engaging in certain sexual behaviors and fail, mm-hmm. and they try a number of times and fail that they that the behavior interferes with their everyday life, whether it 's relationships with their spouse, with their children, with their work with their friends. And that they have significant consequences as a result of that behavior. Right. So those are the earmarks of sex addiction. But other professionals have also seen that that exists. However, they call it something else.
2: Right. You know, one thing that I, I hear is missing is some sort of understanding of morality. That um, the this idea that sex addiction is defined by some more understanding morality of sexuality, and you're stepping outside of that. And one of the things that we hear sometimes is that, well, sex addiction doesn't really exist outside the context of some sort of faith community or faith experience or some sort of understanding of morality. But in the way that you've talked about it, the first thing to understand is it's that problematic behavior that on my own, I've been unable to stop and has become disruptive to my life. So if you go to an essay meeting, Sexaholics uh, Sexaholics Anonymous meeting, there are going to be men and women there that would not necessarily define themselves as moral or being driven by some sort of moral mandate. They are just aware that they are out of control in their choices and it's creating chaos in their life.
1: I think it's really helpful, and I know our audience, really, the, their faith piece is, mm-hmm. is, is super important, but I think in the beginning to understand this, it's good to separate it out from right. the morality and the Christianity, that in the professional world, we do know that this disorder exists. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of debate about what we should call it. Should it be called sex addiction is it more of an impulse control disorder and maybe should be called sexually compulsive behavior or Does it fit in the diagnostic manual under the sexual disorders as hypersexuality? Right. And so there's a huge debate among professionals. I don't know among people who struggle, like I see a lot of clients and they don't care what we call it. Right. Just fix it. Just help me, you know, learn how to do life differently. And so while there's this debate that, swirls here, um, I think when we see people that are struggling, oftentimes it doesn't matter to them. And, and they're not, they don't feel a need to label it. They just feel a need to get help.
2: Right. Well, and even when someone calls um, and asks, you know, as the director of the men's workshop, one of the questions that I get is, who is the workshop for? And as I'm talking about it, I I identify it's for any man who because of the choices he's making in the area of sexuality, he has hurt himself and others, he has created chaos for himself and others, and on his own he's been unable to stop. And so that gives us a context of let's look at that behavior that's being so disruptive. And again, we, we can call it a variety of different things. In fact, that's one of the principles that we talk about at the workshop that it's not our job to convince you that you are a sex addict and to convince you to use that language, but whatever language you use, it helps you to take this more seriously and it also acknowledges the complexity of it. Um, in some ways, if we try to simplify it, we become so, so much less effective in trying to address it and deal with it.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love the way you describe it. Yeah. And sometimes I I do move away from labels and describe and talk about the chaos, the mm-hmm. consequences, the behavior that doesn't fit with the man that you want to be. Right. And I think that can be very helpful for people who who maybe don't want that label of sex addict. Right. And um, and for some people, I, I always say, just don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Right. The sex addiction feel. Uh, the 12 step tradition came out of uh, the sex addiction field or you know originally from alcoholics anonymous mm-hmm. but was easily transferred over to the sex addiction world and so i've had clients that don't feel like it's an addiction they certainly have all those things you describe right. mm-hmm. and they find going to 12 step meetings helpful and and it's like great you yeah. so know if that yeah. is helpful go uh, even if you do not feel like you're a sex addict.
2: Right. Well, and you've kind of alluded to this, but as I understand it, the, the movement around sex addiction actually began here in Minneapolis because there was a strong recovery movement already in the area. And so um, as people began to identify the chaos that people's sexual choices were making, there was a kind of a more natural leap to start perceiving it as an addiction and impl- you know, using some of those principles of recovery to see if it could address the problem. Is that accurate that it kind of started here in that recovery community?
1: Well, Patrick Kearns is from Minneapolis, and so he w- he had a program here in Minneapolis, Golden Valley. It mm-hmm. no longer exists, but because he was here and professionally has started his career here, when he started working in this area, um, he's already found a a community of people who are already meeting. And identifying as uh, being sex addicts, and so it was kind of an organic Mm -hmm. meeting of him coming, being in this area, and starting to write about this and use that language, and people who were already starting to um, feel like they struggled with the issue.
2: Right.
0: It sounds like you guys are describing the origin of Faithful and True. Yeah. Because our our founder, Dr. Mark Laser. 38 years ago, uh, he suffered or experienced his crash and burn as a, as a pastor in Iowa and was connected with Pat, Patrick Carnes uh,
1: at Golden at Valley. Golden Valley. Right. Right. So as
0: I'm hearing you say this, it, it's like Mark is sitting here with us going here, telling my story. Cause that's, I mean, it's out of that relationship that uh, Mark and Debbie founded Faithful and right. True. And, uh, you know, took the ball and really ran with it. Uh, So it's kind of uh, empowering to hear you guys saying that, that very same, the principles that were behind it. Because when I field phone calls uh, that come into the office from men who have finally sought us out on the, uh, on the internet, looking for help. uh, You're right, Elizabeth, when you say so often, your clients may be resistant to that, that term, sex addict, um, but then when you apply Greg's definition or if I forward them on to you and they hear your definition of it, then it really calms them down. It really helps them accept the, what, what, the, what the term itself right. means.
2: Well, and it gives them kind of a, a, a lens through which to see their, their choices and their behaviors. So instead of it being some abstract concept of what label should I use, I have this tool to evaluate. Oh, that does fit me, yeah. and that allows me then maybe to be more open to my need for help and the
0: kind of help I'm going to. to yeah, need. it's less aggressive to them. I think at first they're they're a little intimidated by that by that term.
1: Well, and I think um, also part of the problem is that for professional therapists, we rely on the diagnostic mm-hmm. manual to provide diagnosis, the DSM, and. Two iterations ago, sex addiction was in the DSM, and then it was taken out because the committee felt like there was not enough research. Uh, In the last, we're on the DSM-5 now, and there was a push to get the terminology hypersexuality into the DSM and it didn't make it into the DSM-5. But I think it's also complicated for people seeking help because there are professionals that feel like if the diagnosis is not in the DSM, right. it doesn't exist. Right. And, and that's not true. What we do know that um, all countries in the world use a manual called the International Classification of Diseases, except for the United <laughs> States and Canada. And so in the ICD-10 currently, but the new version is coming out next year, in the ICD-11, they are going to have the diagnosis of compulsive sexual behavior. And then my understanding is, that in parentheses after that, they are going to have sex addiction, comma, hypersexuality. And so I think it gets confusing for people seeking help sometimes because I feel like at Faithful and True, we really are willing to look at the bigger picture. Right. We're not, um, even though we do use the terminology of sex addiction, as I said, if, if, that's, if we can agree you're having a problem, I don't care what we call right, it. Right, exactly. You know? But a lot of therapists really focus in on it's either sex addiction But if you use, you know, and then some therapists will say, well, no, it's compulsive sexual behavior. And then some people will say you have to use hypersexuality. And then you have a fourth group that says it doesn't even exist. And so I think it can be confusing for clients. Absolutely.
2: In in fact, I had a a guy I was working with recently that went to a psychiatrist for some medication for some other issues that were going on. And that psychiatrist said um, that basically sex addiction doesn't exist and that that was something that was imposed on him by an organization or a church, and that the shame that he was feeling was manufactured because of this cultural um, dynamic that he was in. And as you can imagine, that's incredibly confusing and chaotic for someone. And so I was able to kind of just have a follow-up conversation with him and basically say what—I didn't say it as well as you said or as articulate, but I basically said the same thing. There are those who believe in it— and those who don't. And part of the dynamic is this official book of diagnosis that sex addiction is not a part of. So I, I mentioned this earlier. What, what was the history of any behavior being seen as a diagnosable disease? So whether it's um, shopping or gambling, or now I think gaming is being seen more and more as an addictive thing. What was the, the process of behavior is starting to be seen as something that could be diagnosed as a destructive or addictive behavior?
1: I still think we're working on that journey. (laughs) Um, They're called the behavioral addictions. And I would say that there are many professionals who are still a little leery of that, Mm -hmm. who really believe that a behavior cannot be an addiction. The two fields that have really started to change that were the eating disorder Mm -hmm. field, and the gambling field. Mm -hmm. And the research that has come out of those two fields, like the changes that occur in the brain as a result of someone who um, is compulsively eating food, binging on food, and people who are gambling, has started to open the door to the addiction world realizing that, yes, Um, there are chemical changes that occur in the brain when certain behaviors Mm -hmm. occur and become out of control. And so that has really started to help to open the door to shopping addiction, gaming, gambling, and eating disorders. It's just so interesting. When we start talking about sex, Mm -hmm. (laughs) that just adds another layer of people. Uh, lots of reactions on top of that. Right. And lots of personal feelings about, you know, can sex be out of control? Um, if you're engaging in looking at pornography, is that a healthy behavior or unhealthy behavior? Um, for some reason, no one ever talks about. Um, If someone says, you know, I lost all my money in my house because I was gambling, nobody says that's an excuse for your behavior. Right. But the moment someone says, well, I lost all of this because of my sex addiction, people go, well, you're just using that as an excuse. Right. So there is something about the way we view sexuality that I think is so personal for each individual person that sex... Sexual behavior, I think, will be the last to gain the acceptance or the understanding that, that for some people, not everyone, but mm-hmm. for some people, sex can be an addiction as well.
2: Right. Well, and kind of like what you've identified is where you start with your beliefs about sexuality then directly influence whether you see this as problematic behavior at all um, or an addiction, And so for those of us in the faith community, we start from the belief that there was a desire for sexuality, that God created us to be sexual, that it is a good part of who we are. And if we're living outside of sexuality, we're actually not living fully as God intended. And so to be the man or the woman that God created you to be, it is about embracing your sexuality, and then the language I would use, and it's about stewarding your sexuality. But if I don't have a sense of morality then basically anything goes and i think that that's part of the the confusion within the community is if i'm approaching sex addiction and i'm outside of a faith tradition then suddenly what is the standard for determining problematic and if if it feels good and maybe the language would be if it feels good and you're not harming anyone then it would be acceptable even How much you spend on it or how much time you spend doing it, it doesn't matter. So it makes perfect sense that within the community uh, of professionals, it's going to be difficult to identify, is this an issue? Because we all start maybe from a different place.
1: And I would say that that's true within the Christian community Mm -hmm. too. Like, I love your definition and what you said, but I also know leaders and people in the Christian community who maybe wouldn't have that same belief right. system and and then of course you know a lot of our clients you know how they were raised as kids around sexuality both within their families they have a lot of different messages that are very shame based mm-hmm. about that so I, I think it becomes really tricky too for both inside and outside the christian community though i think you have more guidance in the christian right. community to define what is healthy sexuality i, I when i uh, speak, I'll always, you know, audience of 100 people. And I said, if we all wrote out our definition of healthy sexuality, we would have 100 different right. definitions mm-hmm. of healthy sexuality. Mm-hmm. So it's no wonder we have trouble as a professional community trying to figure out what's okay and what's not okay. Right.
2: Yeah. Well, and even, you know, kind of the history of sex addiction in the church, Mark Laser was truly a pioneer And when he first started writing, his book was one of the first ones to come out from a Christian perspective. And at that time, the church was incredibly resistant to it. So 30 years later, we do see more openness to this idea of sex addiction. And in fact, I've come across some articles that would identify that sex addiction is just a construct from the conservative church that's trying to control or repress somebody's sexuality, and so to understand, if you if you know the history, the the church has been a slow adapter of even the idea, yes. and and there's something within us that is resistant to calling something an addiction because many times we hear that term used as an excuse for our behavior, mm-hmm. kind of that idea. of, Well, I'm an addict; I can't help it. And so, you know, one of the things I talk to the men about, faithful and true, is. It, you will never hear us use addiction as an excuse for our behavior. It's an understanding, but it doesn't excuse we are still responsible for the choices that we make. And so within the church, as you've identified, there are so many different approaches to what is healthy. I, I often say the thing that we need is a theology of sexuality. Yes. Where we start from a place of our beliefs, what is good about who we are and who God has created, And that shame that may be imposed on us from our theological tradition is actually um, intensifying the addiction itself rather than being helpful.
1: And I think for people who, there are a lot of people who don't understand the addiction model and, you know, really don't understand that that first step is about accepting responsibility. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. When they hear the words, I am powerless over my Right. Sex addiction, yeah. addiction, whatever, alcoholism. People assume that means I'm not taking responsibility. And that's not what that first exactly. step means. So there's a lot of misunderstanding about the addiction model. And to be fair, there are people I've I've certainly had clients come in right. and that's the place they start. Well, you know, I I don't, you know, it was my addiction. Right, I can't I, help it. I can't help it. And so that is where treatment starts. And so to be fair, there are people, because who, you know, we all would love to have an excuse for right. behavior, we don't feel good or bad. Feel good about. So, I do think that because there are nuances to the addiction world that lots of people just don't understand or understand what's meant by that first step, and that sometimes clients in the very beginning of treatment really hope that they can say that. Right. Like, I don't need to take responsibility, but they do. I use when I worked for Patrick in his program in California. We would have people come in, and um, I always said there's a time for people to get his book out of the shadows because for some people who aren't in the place of taking responsibility they'll read that book and then they misinterpret right every exactly word. right so i would be he pat would be going around giving the book to everyone <laughs> i'd be going back like yeah i don't think you're ready
0: let's give you a week and
1: then we'll give you that book but I, I, so i do think there's a lot of misunderstanding about the addiction world and um taking responsibility and how ultimately that That is the most important step for people in recovery. Right.
2: Well, and what's true is we we learn from our own experiences and stories. And so if I grew up with someone who struggled with some addiction and I never heard them take responsibility for it, I may believe that that's the way that every addict is. Exactly. And so therefore, sometimes um, education isn't just about what's happening currently, but education also includes what's happened historically in somebody's life. And maybe they're the first person in many generations that begins to take responsibility for their choices. And what we know is once you start taking responsibility for them, you can begin to change them. That's a great point. Yeah, I often say you can't steward something you
0: don't own. So we start with ownership. Right. Once again, you've come out with a great point to end today's (laughs) podcast on. Um, Elizabeth, I think we could go on talking about this for uh, at least another show. (laughs) So we'd like to ask you to come back. I would love to. I would love to. (laughs) You're a delightful guest for us, and and, uh, the the subject is so interesting. I think that it's going to be a real service to our community of of viewers and listeners uh, that uh, have been listening to the Faithful and True podcast. Uh, We thank you for joining us today. We look forward to having you back soon. For those of you that are just uh, listening or seeing us for the first time, uh, thank you for joining us. At the same time, we'd like to once again invite you to go on to our new YouTube, The Faithful and True channel, and uh, click on like and and subscribe to this. We're watching our numbers grow by leaps and bounds. It's very exciting for us as we're trying to reach out and provide uh, healing and understanding for uh, everyone who's searching for it. Uh, We also want to remind you that uh, Greg is our director of workshops, and he leads the Men of Valor three-day intensive workshop that we do every single month and even during the pandemic we have been able to still reach uh, our audience in need by doing the men of valor three-day workshop virtually via the professional level of zoom and it's been very Mm -hmm. successful very successful and uh, uh, great uh, great tribute to the way that you teach And so uh, visit faithfulandtrue.com, click on the workshops, and then see the Men of Valor workshop. Until we join you again uh, next time, we'd like to, uh, again, invite you to visit the website, visit the podcasts, and uh, may this coming week be a week for you that is filled with many blessings and great vision.